The crime news for the 12th of March, 1886 comes from the Memphis Appeal and the Bolivar Bulletin. Convict labor, Norfolk Navy Yard troubles, wholesale poisoning, sneezed himself to death, murdered by her lover, and much more in this episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time, in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. Convict labor is producing its natural fruit in Kentucky, as it will do everywhere sooner or later. It is producing riots and bloodshed. It is altogether wrong in every respect and ought to be put a stop to and could be if, as the Evansville Journal says, working men's organizations would direct their energies against it. The state has no right to make profit out of crime at the expense of honest labor. The Norfolk Navy Yard Troubles, Washington, March the 11th. Representatives Botel of Maine and Brady of Virginia authorized the following statement in answer to the letter of Commodore Truxton in regard to the conduct of affairs at the Norfolk Navy Yard. They say it is unmistakably shown that Commander Truxton did cause the removal of an honorable inscription from the dry dock as charged and is given no reason therefore, and that he caused the wholesale removals of Union soldiers and sailors and replaced them with ex-Confederates in flagrant violation of law. Commodore Truxton says he always doubted Mr. Leon's loyalty to the government at the time of its greatest need, and in support of this imputation, he presents to, in his letter a card alleged to have been published by Mr. Leon's in 1861, professing, professing allegiance to the Confederate States. Mr. Leon's denounces the card as an unqualified forgery and falsehood, and he so denounced it publicly at the time of its first appearance during a heated political campaign in 1868. Mr. Leon's has a copy of the Norfolk Union newspaper of that date in which he published his statement denying that he had ever issued or authorized such a card, denouncing the authors as unmitigated liars, and challenged the production of any paper containing such a publication in 1861. It is curious to find, says the statement, that one colored man, J.E. Fuller, a prominent member of the Grand Army of the Republic, removed by Commodore Truxton for alleged offensive partisanship, has since been appointed by Governor Fitzhugh Lee as a member of the Board of Visitors to the Colored Normal School of Virginia so that the United States Naval Commandant at Norfolk has carried political intolerance to a degree unthought of by the Democratic Governor at Richmond. Wholesale Poisoning Attempt to Clear Out a Pennsylvania Almshouse Lebanon, Pennsylvania, March the 11th on Tuesday afternoon, about 80 inmates of the almshouse were seized with vomiting and severe pain. Dr. Wise, the attending physician, pronounced it a case of wholesale poisoning. Measures were promptly taken to counteract the poison. Today, most of the victims are still suffering severely from nausea and 12 of them are still in a critical condition. An investigation revealed the fact that all who drank of the coffee prepared for the noon meal were sick and the coffee pot was found lined with the thick sediment of Paris green. The vessel holds a barrel or more and into this some person had thrown almost four pounds of poison. The doctor is of the opinion that had it not been for the fact that the poison was too strong causing vomiting, more than half of the inmates would now be dead. Frequent listeners will recall that we had a similar story about Paris Green not too long ago. This next story is not a crime story, but it's just quite interesting. It's titled, Sneezed Himself to Death, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, March the 11th. 
While Frank Murgatroyd was in bed early this morning, he was seized with a violent spell of sneezing. The family was around and everything was done for his relief. The sneezing was kept up with unabated vigor, however, and before medical aid could reach him, he was dead. It is supposed that he ruptured a blood vessel. Killed by moonshiners, Dublin, March the 11th. A farmer named Heenan was killed by moonshiners at Kyrish County, Clare. Anti-Chinese Convention at Sacramento, Sacramento, California, March the 11th. At the Anti-Chinese Convention last night, ex-Senator Sargent, in a long speech, approved of the resolution favoring a peaceable removal of the Chinese and the prevention of further immigration, but strongly discouraged boycotting the Chinese or the whites who dealt with them. He urged that the whole question be left with Congress to patch such a bill as would meet the desired end. Killed at a Dance Louisville, Kentucky, March the 11th. James Byrd shot and fatally wounded Tom Martin at a dance in Anderson County, Kentucky, Wednesday night. An old grudge was the cause. Both are farmers. The lynching of Mingo Jack, Eatonton, New Jersey, March the 11th. The inquest on the body of the Negro, Mingo Jack, who was lynched for rape, was continued today, but no evidence was elicited to fix the crime on anyone. A rope was seen in the hands of several persons in the saloon on the night of the lynching, but it seemed to be passing from hand to hand as a sort of natural curiosity and without any apparent ownership. A knot was tied in it by a man named Kelly, but no evidence was elicited to show that it was a hangman's knot or that it was used to strangle Mingo Jack. The examining attorney also, it appeared, when there was danger of eliciting pertinent facts, was particular to inform witnesses of their rights against self-crimination with the result usually of securing negative or non-committal answers. The Kentucky Convict Trouble Louisville, March 11th. A special dispatch, the Courier-Journal says, All is quiet at the Greenwood Mines in Pulaski County, where the militia still protect the convicts from the free miners. None of the miners have been seen for three days, and it is rumored tonight that they have gone in a body to the Kinsey Mines in Whitley County, to take the convicts out of the mines, there being no soldiers at that point. Stowe, Massachusetts, March the 11th. John P. Hildreth, town treasurer, during the 10 years ending last March, is missing, leaving, it is said, $20,000 def deficiency in his account. Murdered by her lover. Brutal crime in the old library building. Annie Stocks killed by Stephen Foy in a drunken quarrel. The inquest. Annie Stocks, a disreputable white woman, was murdered by her paramour, Stephen Foy, Wednesday night. The scene of the murder was the old library building at the corner of 3rd and Jefferson Streets, and the first intimation the authorities had of anything wrong was yesterday morning when Foy walked into Justice Quigley's office, told him that his wife had died during the night, and stated that he would like to have an inquest held. Justice Quigley, in company with Foy, at once repaired to the building and, mounting the stairs, entered room 13, where the evidences of a terrible crime were only too apparent. Lying on the bed was the body of the murdered woman, clad in her nightclothes and covered with blood. A large cut over the right eye showed the cause of death. The room was in disorder, articles of clothing being scattered over the floor, and the walls and furniture spattered with blood. The Inquest after making a survey of the premises, Justice Quigley impaneled a jury and proceeded with the examination of witnesses, of which there were but two, a woman named Mary Hurley and Dr. Willett. The doctor testified that the woman, whose name is Annie Stocks, sometimes called Annie Pingan, came to her death from the loss of blood, which was caused by the wound in her temple. He also stated that had she received medical treatment at once, 
her life would have been saved. Minnie Hurley was next examined and stated in substance as follows, quote, About seven o'clock last night, Foy entered the room and was told by Annie Stocks that she had another man, an Italian, upstairs. Without saying a word, he grabbed up a tin bucket and struck the woman a hard blow over the right eye. The blood spurted out and covered the wall and, in fact, everything in the room. Foy wanted to get a doctor but said he had no money and therefore could not get one. She, however, got a piece of sticking plaster, but Foy would not allow her to place it on the wound. The blood kept oozing from the wound, saturating the bedclothing, and at about 11 o'clock, the woman breathed her last." Unquote. After hearing this testimony, the jury returned a verdict that the woman had come to her death by a blow received at the hands of Stephen Foy. The murderer and his victim. Annie Stocks, or Annie Pingen, as she was sometimes called, was a hard character and had been frequently arrested for drunkenness. She had been living with Foy for seven or eight years. Stephen Foy, the murderer, is a man about 50 years of age, of short stature and gray-haired. He is a laborer and was in the ploy of the Citizen Street Railway Company. When seen by an appeal reporter at the station house last night, he denied all knowledge of the crime. He said he had been working at the polls in the third ward at the election of magistrate and took a number of drinks. He came home about 7 o'clock and laid down and remembered nothing more until he woke the next morning and found the dead body of the woman on the bed when he went to Justice Quigley's office and told him that she was dead. After the inquest, he was arrested and committed to jail on the charge of murder. Died by his own hand. Sad suicide of a young man at St. Louis. A unique demonstration of affection deliberately burned herself to death. St. Louis, Missouri, March 11th. A sad suicide occurred at the Hotel Noble in the city last evening, the victim being David Henry Sayers, a young man aged 28 years and the brother of George N. Sayers, engaged in the pork packing business. Some three years ago, young Sayers had been employed as a traveling salesman, but it is alleged lost his position by irregular habits. It is also said that he had an unfortunate love affair, the result of which weighed heavily upon his mind. For some days past, he was on a heavy spree, and his brother took him to a doctor and had a prescription given him to quiet his nerves and counteract the effects of the drinking. Last evening, about 5 o'clock, one of the clerks of the hotel was startled by the sound of a pistol shot from Sayers' room, and running thither, he found the man lying on the floor, a thirty-eight caliber revolver still smoking in his hand. On the bureau was the photograph of a beautiful woman, and beside it the bottle of medicine, untouched as it had come from the druggist. He had fired a bullet into his right temple. The left side of his head was blown away, and his brain spattered on the wall. He died in a short time from the effects of the wound. A terrible affray in the dark. Decatur, Illinois, March 11th. Three well-dressed young men, Edward Ivey and Bruce Woodard of Liberty, Illinois, and Charles McKim of Cardinan, Indiana, got on the westbound accommodation train on the Decatur and Evansville Road this morning at Mattoon for the purpose of stealing a ride to Decatur. They took refuge in a boxcar, which was closed and locked after them by the trainmen. When within 10 miles of Decatur, the trio became involved in a fight, which ended in a tragedy. McKim shot Ivy in the head, back, and abdomen, and Woodard, who also had a revolver, emptied the five chambers at McKim without hitting him. Nine shots were fired in the dark car, while Ivy lay upon the floor weltering in his lifeblood. The noise attracted the attention of the conductor, who, with the United States Deputy Marshal, who happened to be on board, went to the car, opened it, and found McKim and Woodard in a hand-to-hand -hand conflict over the body of Ivy, who was unconscious. The young men were brought to Decatur and placed in jail. Ivy is at the Lacide Hotel and was thought to be dying this evening. 
Woodard, who had worked for farmers in Logan County, stated McKim fired the first shot without provocation for the purpose of robbing his partner Ivy and that he, Woodard, did not shoot until he thought McKim intended to kill him. There were but $3.40 in the party, about equally divided. McKim alleges that his companions had made it up between them to rob him of his watch and money. A Remarkable Demonstration of Affection, St. Louis, Missouri, March 11th. A remarkable mode of displaying affection was demonstrated in the city jail yesterday. Among the prisoners are Sadie Hayes, a colored woman, convicted of murder in the first degree, and William Lacey, a black burglar, under a penitentiary sentence. The pair grew very affectionate of late. The woman wrote him a note in which she assured the burglar that he was the only object of her affection and requested him, if he thought as much of her as he pretended, to send her his finger with the ring on it. Lacey was to leave for the pen today. After receiving the note, he tore open the sole of his shoe and extracted the steel shank and sharpened it to a razored edge on the walls of his cell. He then deliberately sat down and cut off the small finger of his right hand at the second joint, placed the ring on the severed finger, and sent them to the cell of the murderess. He tied up the stump with a piece of string and then wrapped his hand up in a handkerchief. The jail guards discovered the blood and soon learned what had happened. They took the dismembered finger from the woman. Lacey is said by physicians to be perfectly sane. Looks like an ugly transaction. Chicago, Illinois, March the 11th. Albert B. Fox of Sand Lake, New York, began suit in the circuit court this morning to recover $12,000 from Fay and Hall, a Chicago firm of real estate dealers. Fox claims that Fay and Hall were his financial agents, and in 1884, when transaction, transacting business for him, handled $12,000 of his money. In October of that year, he says he demanded a settlement and the return of the money, but the defendants asked for a delay and have never returned the money. Recently, Fox alleges, he learned that Fay and Hall had invested his money in lots in the city and had built houses on them. Some of the property they have sold, he alleges, at a large profit and are still speculating with his capital, which they refuse to return. Regular listeners will remember this story from quite a while back. Not Clow's Wife, Chicago, Illinois, March the 11th. In Judge Knickerbocker's court this morning, Miss Lizzie Kelsey's petition was denied, and she was declared not the wife of Charles Clow's. This deprives her of any share in the Clow's estate. Klaus killed his mistress in a banyo in this city two months ago and then killed himself. Miss Kelsey was living here as the supposed wife of Klaus, but on the settlement of his estate could produce no record of marriage. Her attorneys set up the claim to a common law marriage contending that he had repeatedly introduced her as his wife. She claimed that a private ceremony, which she supposed to be a perfect marriage contract, had been performed in New York, but that it was not on record. Deliberately burned herself to death. Galena, Illinois, March the 11th. Mrs. Cumway, the wife of William Cumway, a farmer in Scales Mound in this county, yesterday set fire to the bedclothes in her sleeping apartment and deliberately stepped into the flames. Her husband entered the house in time to save the building from destruction, but found his wife dead. Working in the wake of Sam Jones, Chicago, Illinois, March the 11th. A man giving the name of Mayer was arrested last night for the attempted stealing of a diamond pin from a man named Goldsmith. The police state that Mayer is an expert thief from Cincinnati and that he has been following in the wake of the Reverend Sam Jones from city to city. The final article from the Memphis Appeal for today 
gives us an update on the condition of Joseph Manasco. Joseph Manasco, the man shot by Dan O'Donnell near the courthouse Wednesday, died yesterday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And now the news from the Bolivar Bulletin. We get a few more updates on the Holland trial. Proceedings looking to the disbarment of ex-Judge Small of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, have been begun in the circuit court of that city. Governor Ireland of Texas has revoked the extradition warrant in the case of J.B. Belodsky, wanted at Chicago for embezzlement. William Carver, who was serving a life sentence for murder in the Indiana Penitentiary, has been pardoned. James T. Holland, on a trial at New York for the killing of Tom Davis, the sawdust swindler, was acquitted by the jury on the 5th. Chief Poundmaker and 11 Braves were liberated from the penitentiary at Stony Mountain, North, Northwestern Territory, on the 4th. They have gone west to their homes in charge of Father Lacombe. The Queen Regent of Spain has pardoned the Duke of Seville, who was recently imprisoned for insulting her. Holland, the Texan, who killed Tom Davis, the boodle swindler in New York, was considerably lionized after his acquittal of the charge of murder. It is said, however, that some of Davis's friends had sworn to kill him before he could leave the city. Crimes and Casualties On the 3rd, Hugh McMahon, who pleaded guilty to setting fire to the dwelling and grocery on the corner of 2nd and Green Streets, Philadelphia, and conspiring to defraud the insurance companies of $16,000, was sentenced to 10 years in the penitentiary. On the 5th, Samuel Newton was shot to death at Samboy IT for the murder of his wife. He made a full confession. A side note, I think IT stands for Indian Territory, but I'm not sure. E.H. McPherson, ex-colonel in the United States Army and a noted Indian fighter, committed suicide at Evansville, Indiana on the 4th with morphine. Anna A. Coolridge, who has been indicted at Boston for conspiracy in the Mellon case, will come before the Supreme Court in a few days and will then plead to the charge against her. It is understood that a final disposition of the case will then be made. Frank Koch, station agent at Scott Smith Station, Alabama, was brutally murdered on the 5th by unknown parties. On the 5th, John Barrington, an insane patient at the Allegheny City, Philadelphia home, jumped from a third-store window and was killed. Jesse Billings, a prominent farmer near Washington, Indiana, was convicted on the 5th of forgery and will go to state's prison for two years. On the 5th, during the trial of John S. Dider, Jr., partner of the firm Eckersdorf & Company for forgery in Montreal, Colonel Dider, the father of the accused, fell dead in the witness box. About 3 o'clock on the morning of the 5th, 125 Chinese at work as woodchoppers and grubbers near Mount Tabor, three miles east of Portland, Oregon, were driven out by a mob of between 60 and 80 whites, most of them masked and marched to the ferry whence they were conveyed to Portland. Clarence Gray, alias Ishman Collins, was executed in Nevada on the 5th for the murder of R.H. Scott at Paradise on Christmas evening, 1884. On the 7th, Trinidad Alvarez was killed and Senior Paredes was fatally wounded in a duel in Mexico. Juan Gonzalez Cristobal Diaz, the Cuban bandit with several aliases, was killed on the 6th by the Civil Guard. On the 7th, C.H. Capello, a cigar manufacturer, 54 years old, committed suicide by shooting himself through the heart at Evansville, Indiana. The Abbas Caspons was murdered by a band of ruffians in France on the 7th while dining in the hospital of the Sisters of the Poor. Four persons are reported to have been killed by a band of Indians supposed to belong to Geronimo's band near Mexico. 
On the 6th, Johnson, the Negro, was convicted of murder in the first degree at Chester, Pennsylvania, for the murder of the old man Sharpless. On the 5th, a crank created consternation on the Paris Bourse by firing a revolver and throwing a bottle containing an explosive on the floor, at the same time shouting, Viva l'anarchie! On the 5th, eight of the Hyde Park London rioters were sentenced to penal servitude for terms ranging from one to five years. Frequent listeners will also remember a story similar to this a while back. Fifty Sioux Indian girls have recently entered the Wabash, Indiana school. Condensed telegrams. Francis O'Keefe, a prominent and wealthy farmer and stock buyer, was arrested at Cottage Grove, Wisconsin on the 6th on the charge of fraudulently manipulating scales while purchasing livestock and thus defrauding sellers. The condition of the convict farm in Tallapoosa County, Alabama, is said to be frightful, and the treatment of convicts most barbarous. The parties involved will be prosecuted. Pierre Honnaire, who fired a revolver in the French chamber a few days ago, has been sent to a madhouse. The next section of the paper is titled Southern Gleanings. Reverend J.T. Sawyer, pastor of the Baptist Church at Bank, a small hamlet in Blount County, Tennessee, has been arrested for stealing the church records and bound over to court. Robert Rose was shot in the face and mortally wounded by Gus Moody at Clarksville, Tennessee, a few evenings since. The two quarreled about an account. Moody fled. R.G. Fitzgerald, court stenographer, living in Macon, Georgia, committed suicide in that city a few days ago. He arose from his bed, took a pistol off the mantelpiece, and fired its contents into his head, inflicting a wound from which he died in an hour. A Florida woman pleads guilty to having had 42 children. George Price and John Hudson, who stole $600 worth of jewelry from Young and Doyle at Sparta, Tennessee, were sentenced to five years imprisonment. Near the line of Marion County, North Carolina, a few days ago, D.G. Bright, a wealthy and prominent citizen, was beaten to death by clubs in the hands of Herbert Byrd and his two sons. Bright claimed a right-of-way through Byrd's land, and it was while he was passing over it that he was set upon by the three men and pounded to a jelly. Wiley B. Bryan, who was awarded five years' imprisonment for writing and sending obscene letters to Miss Fanny Dorman at Nashville, Tennessee, has been granted, granted a new trial and released on a $750 bond. Some weeks ago, three Negroes took a contract from Mrs. Urbart to pick out a certain cotton crop on her place near Greenville, Mississippi. When the job was completed a few days ago, a settlement was made. Galloway, one of the Negroes, was accused by the other two of receiving too much for his portion when a quarrel arose in which Galloway was shot in the head and instantly killed. A. M. Parsons, a stranger, about 45 years of age, tall and fine-looking with long black whiskers, was found dead in a house of bad repute belonging to a mulatto woman at Vicksburg, Mississippi, a few days ago, and the evidence indicated suicide as three empty morphine boxes from as many different drugstores in that city were found near his bed. The excitement created over the recent killing of Marshall Haygood by Mr. Enos at Milledgeville, Georgia, continues unabated, and criticism of Reverend Sam Jones, both for and against, is heated. The city council, in the view of Haygood's murder and the fear of others yet to follow, recently met and passed an ordinance prohibiting further street meetings on the question of pro-prohibition. H. H. Gilly of Carroll County, Georgia, borrowed a bird dog from his brother, Grant Gilly, recently. The latter demanded its return, 
when H. H. Gilly visited his brother in the field and telling him he had come to settle about the dog, struck him on the head with a rock. Grant Gilly then drew his knife and inflicted seven deadly wounds upon his brother until the latter fell from loss of blood. At Burdett Station, Mississippi, a few evenings since, Mr. Louis Stern of Greenville had some business transaction with the Negro named Hubbard, the amount in question being about 50 cents, during a controversy over which Stern shot at Hubbard several times without effort. The Negro, in the meantime, procured a pistol from friends and opened fire on Stern. The first shot entered Stern's back and is said to be of a very dangerous and perhaps fatal nature. Gaston McCarter, one of the wealthiest and most respected farmers of Meriwether County, Georgia, accidentally shot and killed his oldest son, his favorite child, and constant companion a few days ago. McCarter enraged a mischievous cow, grabbed his gun, and shot at the cow, but instead of shooting the cow, hit and instantly killed his nine-year-old boy who was behind the cow in the woods. Vicksburg is to have an interstate drill. The recent killing of Marshall Haygood by Mr. Sam Enos at Milledgeville, Georgia, has given a bloody culmination to one of the bitterest contests over prohibition yet conducted in Georgia. The jury in the case of Hennessy, who beat Oscar F. Knoll in Nashville, Tennessee, on the gold brick bracket, brought in a verdict of guilty with five years in a penitentiary. Hennessy's counsel immediately made motion to arrest of judgment and announced that they would ask for a new trial. Meanwhile, the prisoner was carried back to jail. Hennessy hails from St. Louis. During a drunken row at Glasgow Junction, Kentucky a few days ago, Will Cook fractured the skull of James Dennison with a two-pound weight. The row was a culmination of an old grudge. Dennison was dying at last accounts. A singular death is that of Clark Thornton of Washington, Georgia, which resulted from poisonous gas inhaled, which escaped through a grave he was digging by the side of another. The other men at work with him left the grave as soon as they detected the gas, but Thornton, thinking there was no danger, remained at work with a fatal effect stated. Hold for the Grand Jury. Portland, Oregon, March the 5th. Twelve white men, identified as being in the mob which drove the Chinese out of Oregon City on the night of February the 21st, were arrested by the United States Marshal and brought here. All waived examination before the United States Commissioner and were bound over in $3,000 each to await the action of the grand jury. Judge Deedy has summoned a grand jury to convene on the 23rd instant. It is not likely that arrest will follow the outrages committed near Albina last Sunday night for the reason that the mob was massed and it will be impossible to identify any of the rioters. A Dastardly Outrage Eatontown, New Jersey, March the 6th. A terrible story is told today of an outrage and subsequent lynching. The whole community is exercised over the matter. Sam Johnson, a Negro, aged 65, was lynched last night for assaulting and outraging a young white girl the 19-year-old daughter of Henry Herbert. The young woman was returning home last evening about dusk. On arriving near her home about a mile out of town, she passed the Negro. He turned and struck her a severe blow on her head with an axe which he carried. He then brutally outraged her and left her unconscious and nearly dead. She was found half an hour later and taken to her home nearby. The neighborhood was soon aroused and every able-bodied man in the vicinity turned out to hunt for the black villain. He ran into the woods and from thence ventured to go to his home in South Eatonton, where he has a wife and four grown children. The Wheeler boys, two strong and active men of Eatonton, were to his home about nine o'clock last night and after a severe struggle bound the Negro and proceeded towards the town jail in Eatonton. 
While on their way, they were met by a crowd of citizens who could barely be kept from killing the culprit then and there, but his captors succeeded in locking him up, though not until he had been a terrible beaten with clubs. Later, he was taken from the jail and hanged to the grating over the jail door. The Prisoner I sit and watch the raindrops fall. I gaze out at the dull, gray skies. I only see the rain clouds pale or watch the ghostly mist that rise. I do not turn my head to see the narrow room that holds me here. I watch the rain and long to be far from my prison room, so drear. Why, laughter waits for me out there, and hearty clasp of loving hands, and merry songs and faces fair, could I but break my prison bands. But here I pine, as one in band, forbidden by the fates to roam, until that laggard tailor man shall send my only trousers home. By R.J. Burdett in Brooklyn Eagle. Now our final article, A New Game, How Two Prisoners Abused the Confidence of a Moonshiner. Recently, one of the United States prisoners was released on bond, and as he was leaving the office, he said to Commissioner Haight, I got to walk 12 miles now to get home. Those fellows over at the jail beat me out of all my money. How was that? inquired the commissioner. Why, yesterday, one of the prisoners came into my cell and dropped a bag of salt on the floor. After he went out, another prisoner came in, seeing the bag, said, Hello, here's Blank's salt. Let's put him up a trick on him, and going out, he got some sawdust, which he brought into the cell. We then emptied out the salt and filled the bag with sawdust and placed it where it had been left by its owner. In a little while, he came in and asked if his bag of salt was there. I told him there was no bag of salt, but there was a bag of sawdust pointing to it. I'll bet you two dollars that bag is full of salt. Having just seen the salt emptied out and the bag filled with sawdust, I thought I would make a stake, so I put my last two dollars on the sawdust. The bag was opened, and I'll be blamed if it wasn't full of salt, so I lost my money. Saying which the moonshiner languidly strolled out of the commissioner's office and commenced his weary walk of 20 miles homeward. That was from the Atlanta Journal. That's the crime news for the 12th of March, 1886 from the Bolivar Bulletin and the Memphis Appeal. Please join me again for A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.